And we are live. Welcome once again to MicroConf On Air. As always, I am your host, Rob Walling. And every other Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, we live stream for about 30 minutes. We cover topics related to building and growing ambitious SaaS startups, bring us freedom and purpose, and allow us to maintain healthy relationships. We believe that showing up every day, shipping that next feature, that piece of marketing copy, or closing your next sale is a way to build a sustainable company. And my guest for today has certainly <laughs> been shipping features, that piece of marketing copy, and uh, and closing sales. This is going to be a really cool conversation. It's with Saba Kinajad about how he and his co-founder bootstrapped their SaaS to $5 million in ARR in two years. They went from zero to $1 million in a year, and they went from one to $5 million. Their SaaS is called Veed. It's at Veed.io, V-E-E-D.io. And it is, let's see the, the H1. So I don't, it's in-browser video editing software. You can add captions. You can do all types of cool stuff. This is something that I remember 10 or 15 years ago saying, everything's going to go into a web browser. Someday we'll have a Microsoft Word in the web browser, but things like video editing, those are going to be really hard. I'm not sure we'll ever be able to do that. And of course, not sure we'll ever be able to is always maybe a decade out. Well, I want to make one tangent, one note before we go. Producer Xander, who produces this show and produces MicroConf, just did an absolute baller move. As this was coming up, as the theme music was playing, I got a, a ping that the email for microconf, there's five microconfs. Tickets are now on sale. So you can head to microconf.com slash upcoming dash events to get tickets. But it was so cool that literally as this was starting, tickets are on sale to our, our general list. So we, we have events in Portland, Oregon, Austin, Texas, Boston, Massachusetts, Croatia, and London. These are all in September and October of this year. So Check that out if you're interested. I'm super excited to get back to in-person events and hope to see you at one of those. The local events are one day and they're relatively inexpensive. They're like $100, 100 pounds. And then the event in Croatia is our two and a half day growth event, third and final year in Croatia. So with that, let me tell you a little bit about Saba Kinijad and then I will bring him on the show. Oh, I don't know. Let's see. I don't have a bio. So he is Saab8. A on Twitter and Veed Studio on Twitter. And with that, let me welcome him to MicroConf on air. Saba, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Rob. Good to so, be here. So you might have to, so normally I have two or three sentences that I can read to give background, but we were talking off air and you are a software developer by training. You want to give folks any other context so they maybe understand why you decided to build Veed and you know how you went about doing it. Sure. I'm actually a graphic designer. Technically, it's what I studied at university, but got very interested in code and creative development. And that's, I, I suppose, though, that combination of like design and code got me really interested in motion graphics, building tools, creative tooling. And that was the thread that started leading towards V, but it was a, quite a scatty journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as it often is. So I do want to call out audience questions. If you are watching or listening to this, I would love to hear your questions. You can post them, I guess, in the YouTube chat. I'm not on YouTube right now, so I don't know exactly where that is, but preferred would be in MicroConf Connect and the MicroConf On Air channel. And all your questions go to the top of the stack. I think my first big question for you is, what were some of the major growth levers that you were able to pull to grow to 5 million ARR in two years? Because you really... Uh, obviously, a credible anom anomaly in a good way, like a unicorn story in our little bootstrap SaaS world. So I'm just curious how how this came about. I think, yeah, it's so many different things. So if, if you go back to the early days, like the first three to six months, 
it was very like this is like before SEO kind of really takes effect in your business. So it's like posting on Quora when Quora was like working quite well. It was like speaking to as many users as possible, posting content on Reddit, Facebook groups, and just really pushing super, super hard. And frankly, probably being quite annoying in a lot of communities. That was like the initial push to get the, the early flywheel going. But then after some time, content landing pages and all that starts taking over. The thing that I think has been really key for us to get to something like 5 million ARR is the size of this market that we're in. The ceiling is so high, which kind of meant there was so much traffic for us to start absorbing and really going after. Yeah, I think that it makes a lot of sense. And I've seen several startups capitalize on this bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped founders who look at, for example, the e-signature space, which is many billions, as I'm assuming video editing software is similar, video editing and screencasting and all that. Signwell, what used to be DocSketch, they just changed their name to Signwell, is a play in that space. Um, and they, Ruben, the founder, did a similar kind of analysis of, I don't need... I. I don't need to own that much of the space to become a multi-million dollar company. And the, the traffic right. is there. The interest is there, whether it's on Captera, whether it's Google ads, whether it's SEO, whether it's content, whether it's partnerships, whether it's integrations, there are a lot to be had versus you can also build a five or $10 million business in a small niche construction management software or something, but it's a different grind. Then if you're not driving massive amounts of leads, it's one at a time and you have to be higher priced. And that's something I am surprised by is how inexpensive Veed is. Checked out your pricing page this morning. And for your basic plan, let's we'll look at your annual plans. I have a question about that later because your annual plans have a big discount, like 50% off from your monthly. I want to find out more about that. But your basic plan on an annual basis is 12 bucks a month and the pro is 24 and you get a lot for that. Have you guys played around with pricing? Do you feel like you're priced where you need to be? Do you feel like you can or should you know, raise pricing based on, the, based on uh, that center? I suppose yes to all of the above. Like we, we haven't done as much experimentation with pricing. And obviously you can see with the annual pricing, we're putting those 50% discounts in. And that's because we want to reduce the churn as much as possible, get people in for as long as possible. And I see really interesting observations with tools like mm -hmm and uh, Calm, where they do only annual billing. And that's super interesting because someone buys the product and then uh, for the year, and then they commit to learn how to use it and regularly use it and hopefully they'll be better for the next year too. So, not as much experimentation as we want to yet. Still, the focus is building that really big top of funnel. But as I said, with so many people, you can charge, you know, relatively low amounts, yet get the volume, you know? Yeah, and that's a good point. For folks who are watching this, you can charge that amount because the space is big and because you can get relatively inexpensive leads. Because again, coming back to my example of if you built software for countertop installers, which I know for your friends who built many multi-million dollar SaaS company in that space, it's not as big. There aren't a bunch of, of inexpensive leads. So there's not free traffic that you can get. And there's, they have to do a lot of cold outreach and it's been a very slow slog for them. Uh, a slog is probably not the right word, but I mean, they launched 15 years ago and they've just built it. And so if you're going to get into a space like that, pricing, having three, four, $500 a month pricing as you're starting is not only viable, but is probably a necessity. And if you can't charge that, you're not going to build a multi-billion dollar business versus a company like what desktop or downloadable competitors are you basically, I used to call them refugees. I'm taking refugees from Infusionsoft and, and HubSpot and other companies. That's what we did at Drip. So what are the maybe hated competitors that are desktop based that you feel like you pull a lot of folks from? Yeah, this is, this is quite interesting. 
So obviously we've got like the iMovies, Filmora Wonder Shares and the Adobe products. But a lot of our users maybe don't know they need video editing software, but they do know they need to add text to a video. Uh, and, that's the, and, that's the, and that's the difference. So we need to be on those search terms, add text to video, trim yep. video. And like your sign PDF space, like you can go after that. You can go after sign PDF, but then you can also go like sign Acrobat or sign PDF okay. on a map and just go really far down the long tail. That makes sense. And so I have this question. It's a, it's a bit of a selfish question because I'm in through Tiny Seed, I'm invested in a company called Cloud Forecast. And what they do is they look at companies, they're a SaaS company, they look at your AWS bill and they help you keep it in check. And they either make recommendations on how to lower it or they alert you when stuff's out of control. And so since I, and I talk to them reg regularly. So since I do that. I always think of a company like yours in video editing that as you scaled to 5 million, did your, are you on AWS? Uh, Google Cloud. Google Cloud. Did your Google Cloud bill like go through the roof? Has that been, has it scaled with revenue or do you have controls in there or monitoring as you've scaled up? Yeah. So it's, it's obviously on more expensive side. We have over a million people, about a million people coming to our platform every month at the moment. Wow. So that. So this is an interesting thing that's been really beneficial with bootstrapping. Because we haven't had that much money, even when the server cost comes to $1,000 a month, we really look at it and we're like, oh, how can we optimize the render? How can we make this? If we probably had loads of money in the bank, we'd probably just ignore it. And the yeah. server bills would be three, four times higher than they are now. They could be in six figures. And so that's been really helpful keeping, keeping the limit on it. Yeah. The other thing is we recognize that the longer the video, the, the larger the file, the more expensive it is for us to render. So we don't allow our free users to edit videos over 50 mega. And so there's been multiple things we're doing for the, on the user side to keep the cost down. Yeah, but it's, it is obviously pretty high. Yep. And you're, to your point about raising funding versus bootstrapping, that's always something you have to deal with. We had to deal with the optimization of, I remember shutting EC2, Amazon EC2 instances down on the weekend or downgrading them or so. It was just until auto scaling was in place. It was a hassle. I remember thinking, I would like to, I wish I had some funding. And then we got acquired by a venture-backed company. And I remember telling the CEO like, hey, we have to do this thing because of this server. And he said, how much is it? And I was like, it's $800 a month. And he laughed and he's like, are you kidding me? What do you waste these? You have more important things to worry about than this walling. It was funny. So we have a question from John Knapp in MicroConf Connect. And I'm not, uh, I'm trying to figure out, he says, what were the non-objectives, the things you intentionally did not make time for? And I think what he's asking is like, what were some things that maybe it's, it sounds like you and your co-founder are pretty focused and very effective. There's a lot of people, there's a difference between efficient and effective, right? Efficient is I get a lot of things done, but maybe I'm not doing the right things. And effective is I'm, I'm working on the right things and I get a lot done. And I would, it, it sounds like you are in the, the effective camp. So I think John's asking, what are some things that you ignored? Or maybe common wisdom is spend time on this and you guys just didn't and you laser focused on other things. I, the first year there was, my time was just full-time growth. If I was doing any engineering, it would be engineering only for growth. It, and there's this concept someone taught me about, does it make the boat go faster? Hmm. And what, what he means by that is whatever you do, you have to make, like, it, as long as it makes the boat go faster, you should do it. If not, just don't do it. Mm -hmm. So like we were kicking out features and intentionally making technical debt, not because we wanted to, but because we had to do that to make the boat go faster. And everything that we did was just to grow as quickly as possible. And I think it was so beneficial growing as at that speed um, in the early days, because I kind of feel like it's, you know, it takes on a trajectory and it's that kind of start people's growth idea. It's just like growth solves all problems. 
And there were some really hard technical things that we couldn't solve. But because we were growing fast, we had enough revenue to hire someone who could solve. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was all, all, all of that. So it was like, there was so many really nice optimizations we could have done, but it was just like, no, we need to go faster. So just really heads down on. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so was that first version of your product really, was it super simple? Yeah, no login, nothing. Like it mm. was like a trim, you could trim the video, crop the video. I think draw on the video because it was a really low and easy search term to rank for. So yeah, dead simple. And then the next feature, next feature meant we could target more people. Just kept kept going like that. Yeah, that's a great story. Have Has raising a round of funding ever crossed your mind? And if so, what has kept you from doing it? So I have a really interesting relationship with funding. When I needed funding, no one would give me any money. So I was like annoyed about it. And I got a bit of a chip on my shoulder and I was like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to do it on my own. And then, so me and my co-founder Tim, we're like working super hard trying to get it done. And next thing we get invited to Y Combinator to do an interview and we're like, great, amazing. This is the big break for us. And they, they rejected us basically. And, and we're like, what are we going to do? So that's when we're like, okay, that's it. I'm bootstrapping. No one's telling me I can't do this business. I'm just yeah. going to go for it. And for the first year, we're like, no chance, not even going to touch that stuff. Like we're just going to keep going. And now that we've got 5 million ARR, we can see 10 in the distance. The, I feel like it has changed a bit our relationship towards, towards funding. And maybe it's because I'm, I think I'm thinking about this being a really big company now. Yeah. Never thought it would get to this far. I thought I'd get to, if I was lucky, a million ARR with a group of 10 people and that would take right. four years. But right. yeah, now I think we're, we're looking at competing with some really big companies and yeah. That's but what happens. Five or 10. Well, I mean, yeah, and you're at your growth rate. You're at, at Series A where you could raise five or 10 million at a 50 to 80 million value, just throwing stuff around. You don't have to sell much of your company to get uh, mid seven to, to low eight figures in the bank. And it absolutely, based on, you, again, your effectiveness, you and your co-founder and your company's effectiveness, not much capital. I can only see capital. You're in this situation because so many people raise capital for dumb reasons. And they raise, they raise it because they think it's going to fix the problem that they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> but you folks know what you're doing as evidenced by the result, it looks like from the results. And that's where adding that capital, I think, especially if you want to compete against it, can really help. Yeah. The way, so the way that we're looking at the capital is that he... We, it took us two years to pay for Figma, right? As a company, because we did all these workarounds and it took us about two years to pay for Airtable, but now we're paying them like relatively large amounts of money. However, that three, two years got us really sticky, got us really familiar, got us used to that workflow. All our assets are in there. So now the switching cost is super high. So the idea of taking funding would be to, again, defer that point, which we would be charging our users till they are super, super, and then hopefully have them for longer. So yeah, but who knows? Yeah. And that's a big thing with freemium models is it pushes revenue out a year or two, sometimes three, whatever. I think Dropbox always had their number 3% convert every year or something of their free plan. And it's, you can't do that if you need to pay the server bills, but if you can pay the server bills out of venture money, you can, you have so much more flexibility. And that's the thing, you know, what microconf started, it was all about self-funding and bootstrapping. And over time we've become about bootstrapping and mostly bootstrapping, right? What we call like Mm -hmm. raising money is not a bad thing. If you're going to use it for the, if you're not going to give up control, if you're not going to waste it in essence, which a lot of folks do, if you have a mechanism to, to put it to use, which you guys do, obviously. Yeah, no, exactly. 
Uh, do you, and I guess follow up question. Do you feel to date like your growth could, like you could have grown faster had you had outside capital? No, no. You guys, and that's one of my main reasons why I didn't want to take any. And yeah. I've been so like, I I just think more money would have wasted money. First of all, the raise would have wasted my time, and it's been a two twenty four months. And if I was out for three of them, that's a relatively you know, 15, 20% of my time has been spent raising. Right. And then, and then, yeah, not having to raise has then afforded me the luxury to just be like, what should we really be focusing on? What is going to move that needle? What is going to hit the next million ARR? What are the next growth levers? So I think it's just made me incredibly focused. And also I just love the fact that everyone in the company really respects and appreciates everyone around them. And the resource what we've done with what we've had yeah no doubt and you have a pretty large team right of full-time folks how, how big is your team now about 65 people wow 70. yeah and you're fully remote so it, since it's been a world of covid and you've only been around for two years i'm guessing you haven't done a big team retreat to get everybody together do you plan to do that once covid's wrapped yeah hopefully this, we're talking about september but like we're gonna have to pull the trigger quite late on it i think Yep. No, I know the feeling. Europe. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. As I said at the top of the show, we're selling tickets for events in two events in Europe and three events in the U.S. in September, October, and and similarly, it's yeah. You gotta fingers crossed that all that that work pans out. I want to ask you about your annual plan discount for monthly, fifty-two yes. percent cheaper, really cheap. And I've seen a few companies do this. Lead Pages did this back in the day. I've seen a handful do it, and they do it for specific reasons. You mentioned earlier the fact that you sell an annual plan then you don't have monthly churn. Maybe you'll have annual churn, mm. but it does reduce churn. But talk me through the thought process of getting to that discount. Have you played with it? Is it working for you? All mm. that. I, yeah, I think we got it from Webflow, actually. <laughs> we were like, mm-hmm. we, were, we were looking at what they're doing. And I think we're, it's just churn, basically. Like churn is, we're not like, I, I think with products that grow ridiculously quickly and have really big you know, markets, I think that churn is always going to be a little bit higher than maybe smaller, really stickier. So we're just experimenting with ways that we can get people to stay for long. And I think, yeah, getting them to at that purchase point to be like, oh, wait, I could get it for $30 a month or I could spend $150 and have it for the year. That's a no brainer. Like we're trying to get people to make those sort of decisions. And I think there's a lot of exercises that we need to do around pricing. We've been running the company for about two years and I think we're still trying to build this top of funnel. And I think once we're satisfied that we've got, that we've captured so much of that, that the market and the traffic, I think that's when we'll really start working out what is monetization feed properly. And I know that sounds crazy, but it, it does generally feel like there's these big chunks of work that we only need to, we need to do in certain orders. Yep. And given that you have enough revenue and you're paying the bills, you have that luxury to figure that out at a later time, almost as a lot of venture funded companies do where they raise the big bucket of money and then think about it over longer. Period. Yeah. And what's interesting is if you, once you are at scale and you, there are this many people coming to your site, like you can have a, you can have a team of people working out monetization and that's just their job yeah. and moving the needle by 1% can make huge impacts on, on, on conversions and the bottom line. Right. Yep. Absolutely. All right. We have a question from Tony. He's the co-founder of cloud forecast. Actually, I mentioned them earlier in the show, but he says with your rapid growth, how did you transition from being a founder running the business? to hiring people to do so? When and how did you decide what jobs you f- to fire yourself from and hire people to do those? In the first year, I would fire myself from the job when it was so painful, when I was like angry. I remember with customer service, it was just like, I was getting angry with my co-founder. I was like, look, you, you, like, it's time to hire someone, it's time to do it. 
And with design, like design something that holds really close to my heart, but I recognize at some point that I just don't have the time to give it the love that, that it, that it deserves. Um, and I was like, I need to find the best designer possible who is better than me. Now I try to see it coming. I need to see, I think now we've like, as we've been grown so much in the last two years, I now predict that I'm going to need this person in the next six months. So we should start looking now because no other scenario in this company's history has meant that we don't need that. You know what I mean? So now I'm just trying to see what's coming and, and you know, speak to smart people like yourself and just say, you know, what, what should I expect in the next 12 months as you go from five to 10 and try and try and understand what those key things are. Because the last thing you want to be doing is stunting your company's growth because you won't give up your development responsibilities or right or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I have this kind of mental framework of building software startups and that f first you're building a product and then you're building at a certain point, you've built a product that people want to use. And then you're building a business, which is where you start, oh, money's coming in. I need to be relatively profitable if you're bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped. And then you're building a company after that, the next stage. And the difference between the business and the company is company is when you start hiring and then you start hiring managers and hiring managers who manage managers and you bring a recruiter and all that. And you're definitely usually business to company transition is somewhere in the, it depends, but it can be around, you know, that the product to business is often around 10 to 20K MRR. And then the business to company is usually around half a million or a million a year. So you're well past that. Given all the hiring that you've done, because you went from zero to 10 people in a year, then you went from 10 to 65, 70 in a year. Do you have, did you bring an in-house recruiter? Do you hire someone out outside to do it? Because I've hired, in my career, I've hired literally 100, 150 people, but I had 20 people in there the last year I was at Drip and it was, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without a recruiter. And I usually had a bad relationship. I usually didn't like recruiters, but we had an in-house one who was amazing. So I'm curious how you guys have handled it. So this is where I think maybe a seasoned investor mentoring you would probably have been a good thing because we didn't, we come from a relationship where we used to work with recruiters because they used to put us in jobs. Yeah. And so we were quite, we didn't want to go down the route and we wanted to do it all ourselves. And then things just started breaking and then we're like, okay, we need to get literally recruited up to the eyeballs. And now we're relatively happy working with a few of them because they're expensive, but like it saves, it saves you a lot of time if you can do those final four or five interviews on really well vetted talent. What we've found is that we need to be looking everywhere, right? Like every job board, every referral we've done some creative things where we've i posted on twitter and i'll give you a free pair of like airpod maxes if we interview a designer you refer right. and like that sent 200 people my way and i think mm -hmm. we yeah we hired we hired one of them so we're just trying all different routes mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it's the hardest like part of the job yeah yep. and it's 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 no one tells you at the start of the journey of becoming a founder where you think you're on the beach of, with the cocktail just checking your stripe that actually your job as a founder is pretty much a full-time recruiter, it's reality. That's it. Yep. What the three responsibilities of a founder are to set the vision. This is once you've went your company building, not when you're product building, but you set the vision and communicate it, keep enough money in the bank to pay the bills, and whether through revenue or fundraising or whatever, and hiring, recruiting. And that's it. Those are the three main things that a CEO founder should be doing at, at your stage. Something we've found luck with, I'll tell you, after we were acquired in 2016, they had two in 
house recruiters that were full-time salaried positions. And they had formerly been the contingency recruiters that you and I, <laughs> that used to place us in jobs. And they take 10%, 15%, 20% of the first year annual salary. But they hired them and brought them in-house. And that worked really well for us. And at a certain point, going from 10 to 50, it's probably when you, you start thinking about doing that. You know, Yeah, we, we have that actively out now. Yeah. yeah. And for early stage, sorry, you're I, I don't know how they're going to do it because they're just, it's, it's the same. It's still that really hard, laborious job, isn't it? It's just going to have to fall on them and yep. us as well. That's what they do. And the responsibility is theirs. And they do a lot of, they do a lot of outreach. They do a lot of, they're experts, much like you become a developer, you start to figure it out, you become a designer and a couple years in, you know what you're doing five or 10 years in, you're a senior, you're a journey, journeyman at it. And that's where hiring a recruiter who knows that they, it is laborious, but it's what they do. I We've, think the hard part, the hard part of that recruiting job, I think is as designer developer, you, when you work, you have something to show for what you did the previous hour, but recruiting, you have nothing to show maybe for months and then maybe the hire comes in. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. It takes a certain type of person. Mm -hmm. We've actually, with our startups, like Tiny Seed folks, I've been recommending a company called Dynamite Jobs. This wouldn't be a fit for you in particular, but for folks who are listening, Dynamite Jobs has a done-for-you recruiting service that's a flat fee. It's 4600 bucks, And they basically will post the job, promote the job, and then they sift through resumes and they sift through candidates. And then they give you vetted the top three, top four candidates. And you take it from there. Then you have to negotiate and do all that. So it's a nice... It's not like a full service recruiter who's 15 grand or 20 grand will do more than that, negotiate salary and do all that. But this is a nice way for a more cash strap startup to, to be thinking. Of. Let me check if there are any more questions. We are at time. We have one more question that I want to ask. It's a, from a listener. It's from Coding Mania on YouTube. And he says, how, I'm trying to see, how did you, how can I talk to potential customers before building an MVP if I don't have a network in the specific industry? I'm curious if you guys had to do everyone starts from some from scratch, right? I had no audience or I let's do it now. I think you've got to have something out there to start a conversation. You can go in and be like, hey, I'm researching this and people will give you your time. But to get the best feedback you need, I think the landing page or the value proposition explaining what you want to do. I think Hayes a a sponsor of, of the show mm -hmm. and yep. they had that really nice landing page, didn't they? Just saying what the problem was with email. And I think that's something that a non-technical founder could do, or even a, a technical founder, just to start that conversation. Yep, that's good. I have put landing pages up for SaaS pro for two different SaaS products that I was vetting. I did a landing page with an email capture before I wrote my first book to figure out if there was interest. I, I did a landing page for MicroConf itself, the very first in-person event in 2011. We did a landing page with dates and and some headshots and email capture to see if anybody was interested before we booked a venue. We did it for Tiny Seed, our startup accelerator for SaaS. We literally put up a landing page. It was a manifesto. This is what's wrong with funding, and this is how we want to fit into it. We tweeted about it. We, you know what I mean? It, you can vet. You can get a lot of conversations started. Or build a you know a decent launch list with just the last one I did for Tiny Seed was literally I went to lead pages I logged into lead pages and I because I'm not a designer and really these days not even a developer and I just wrote copy and put it up and it was fine in terms of how it looked but the results were amazing and it got us a bunch of conversations so that's to me that's the real MVP. And another really good one that I've I've heard is start a podcast and reach because people love talking about themselves and just interview people in this industry that you're going after about what they do and and what their job looks like and what tools they have what ten of those together now you're like a thought leader in the industry. Yep. Good advice, sir. We are at time. Thank you so much for joining me. If folks want to keep up with you, your Twitter username is under your name. It is S A B the letter eight 
a so it's Saba but with an eight before the A and of course at Veed Studio if folks and Veed.io if folks want to check out what you're working on. Thanks so much for. Yep. All right, and thank you for joining me. All right, I was like, there's some theme music. Thanks so much to Hey and Stripe. They're our headline partners this year and next. Really looking forward to uh, next time in August 4th, 2021, Xander Castro and I, producer Xander, are going to be doing an Ask Us Anything about MicroConf. 